Hello again, everybody. Welcome back. It's Julie Knudsen with the podcast, Training the Pointing Labrador, episode number 154. Today, I'm going to do a fairly brief G update and then have a little bit of a discussion about uh, noise and body movement in working with our dogs. So the G update, uh, right now we're kind of just tootling along. So we do Upland every week. Uh, and if the birds are catchable, now she catches them. I put a video of that <laughs> on there. That's the first one. I, I, I can't actually totally remember, but it's one of the first ones when, uh, that she's done that because it was just sitting there. And so she reached in and grabbed it. Um, and the next one she pointed, but still, um, so catchable birds, not a good thing. And then she's running all the marks now. It doesn't matter what kind of bird you throw, the guns, whatever the thunder launcher dealies she's real good on all that and and she likes it still we are swimming seems to be our kind of a slow thing that we're and i put that video on facebook too uh goodness she just the day that she finally figures out just lower your shoulders and let your hips come up a little and you'll be fine but uh and normally when they pick up the bumper or a bird in the water that forces their shoulders down and their hips kind of up and they figure that out but we're still working through that so that's just her little idiosyncrasy i'll take that you know other than that i'm very happy with her and she's just about fetching off the ground now on her force fetch not that quick quick thing that i really like but she's uh she's still doing it g style so all is well on the g front and just one little piece of news, I'm about a third of the way through recording uh, the audiobook version of Training the Pointing Labrador. It's fascinating. I haven't read my book in entirety uh, for a long time. <laughs> so it's like, oh, hey, that's a good idea. And then there's a few things in there that I've added to since then, and it's real hard not to just ad lib, but I'm not. I'm just reading the book on there. And I, I got to tell a quick story. I'd been out dog training and then came in and was working on one of the chapters and uh if anybody remembers this if anybody's ever listening to it and there's this one chapter where you're reading listening along and all of a sudden there's like six seconds of silence uh unless my editor can edit that out because i'm sitting there doing this and all of a sudden there's something itching me on my forehead and it and then all of a sudden it's like oh i know that feeling and sure enough, and then it dropped onto my arm, and then it's walking on my arm, and there was a tick. So I had to very quickly get that off of me, but I couldn't just walk away, and I hadn't paused the thing. So I had just like a tick interruption there. So if you ever hear a unusual silence, for it was the, it was the great tick attack. So that was fun. That's the nature of this job, I'll tell you, is that deal. Ticks everywhere, and this year because of our moisture... They are everywhere, everywhere I've been, everywhere everyone else has been. So be real careful, folks, and be sure and flee and take your dog. Nasty things for all of us with those guys. All right. What I'd like to talk about today um, has to do with some of the listener questions I've got, some other things, is I'm going to talk about um, talking and its role and helpful way and in a not helpful way in uh, working with our dogs. So I, I just want to remind people, and, and this really applies. And if you, watch, if you watch the really, really good 
And I mean like the really good guys, you know, go watch Danny Farmer run a dog and Marty and, and some of those really exceptional guys. And there is not a lot of movement and there is not a lot of talking and there is not anything very loud either. If you ever notice, there's a, a basically they're in kind of their own bubble doing their own thing. And there's a reason for that. It's just not kind of how they like to do it necessarily. It's that that is where they get the most efficiency out of this interaction and they get their dogs the optimum chance to go do the work that they're going to do. And I don't know how often people think about their own role in that or are even aware of that. And I had talked about it in the previous podcast when I talked about the guy that wanted to know how I could do better. And I said, talk less. (laughs) talk a whole lot less and I actually it reminded me too as I was reading some of the bird part of my uh of the training the pointing Labrador when I really emphasized for some reason I must have really been having some issues with people on that when I wrote that but about don't talk out in the upland field um do not be constantly making noise and and directing and correcting and instructing because that is the last thing a good upland hunting dog needs is somebody with marionette strings pulling on it. So I thought, you know, maybe this is a, a good time to to talk about what our what our role of noisemaking is and, and in addition to movement as well. So if you go into the animal world, the dog world, the canine world, and you look at them, if you just saw a pack of dogs, um, you know, that uh, dingles maybe I don't know but pack of dogs that that are together and you can see it a little bit with coyotes although they're kind of yippers so maybe that's not a good example but if you see them right they don't have a conversation they don't go hey hey Betty what do you think about that they don't have any of that they have other levels of communication where it's body movement is significant body movement is significant um Anything, if you, if someone does make a sound, whether it is a low growl or whether it is a, one of those kind of moans of pleasure because they're rolling or the sun is wonderful or something, it, it might be that, or it might be, you know, some kind of alarm or alert that there's something going on, but every sound carries significance and every movement carries significance and that is how those animals communicate with one another is through things which may seem very very subtle uh, to us but they are not subtle to those animals and so we inherently have with an intelligent you know well-bred talented canine we have an animal that can be very very attuned is I'm not going to say can be they are very attuned to subtlety and yet because we are the way we are humans we're not so subtle we make a lot of noise (laughs) we move a lot we do a lot of stuff some of it is significant some of it is absolutely for no other reason than we just feel like it so we bring all of this clutter and stuff into the communication world with these canines who do not do that. Now, yes, as puppies, and they're rolling around and biting each other's faces and all that. Yes, in the puppy play, absolutely. But as they get to where they're more serious contributors to their system that they have, then they, they go into that world of efficiency and do things that are useful or things that express something that is worth expressing. 
and whatever you do is has some sort of meaning and is significant. So we come in with our just kind of claptrap, a lot of noise, a lot of stuff, mind on 20 million things, working with this dog that is not that way at all. So if we could bring some awareness into the difference between these two species and that the more that you make adjustments to the way that dog functions, the better this will be. And this is at every level. This is on basic obedience. He'll sit here on a leash. It certainly is in the upland field. Uh, the real upland field with dogs that are really doing this seriously. And it's, oh my gosh, it's so true uh, at whether you're running just regular single marks for started levels in the retriever stuff or whether you're running the highest level stuff and you got quads and double blinds and all kinds of craziness. So the more that you can attune your dog into focusing on the work at hand completely, the better they will do carrying out those functions. The more that you jumble it up with lots of noise and mulligans and start over and do it again and wait, that's not right. And wait, I don't know. Okay, well, go ahead, Sam. Let's see. Oh, I don't know if he saw it or not. If you have all that in there, then that dog cannot be efficient and they cannot be focused or at least as efficient and as focused as if that confusion and all that stuff wasn't in there. So I know what a lot of us think. So we're taking our dog to the line and we're nervous. Somebody's watching. It's a, an event. People are looking, whatever it is that gets you kind of a little bit angsty. So you're walking up there and you're thinking, trying to remember the five things that, that your pro told you, or that somebody told you, or that you decided, and you're trying to remember all five things. So your mind is on your mind. Your mind is trying to pull things out of your memory and your mind is not on, again, that target for the rifle that where you're going to be pulling the trigger. It's not on that. It's on <clears throat> all kinds of other stuff. And so that's what, that's the energy state that you're bringing into this. Therefore, that's what you're communicating to this dog is this kind of helter-skelter stuff. So then dogs tend to take two approaches. They either adapt your helter-skelter and, you know, just kind of, whoa, there's one. Hey, and they kind of, they just got this sort of chaotic deal. And if they're really good, they can still see where stuff is and still know what to do. And then other dogs are really genuinely kind of confounded by it. And they're like, well, I'm not sure. I do. I, is it that one? Do I go? Where is it? And they, they are not that focused, single purposed uh, rifle aimed at one single target. And we induce that in our dogs a lot. And so when we go and we're talking a lot and we've all seen that and it, you know, people like to make fun of somebody that d does a lot of chatter, but we all need to be a little bit aware of that. But if you go up and let's just say you're training and you go up to the line and you're doing something and you walk up and then they sat crooked. And so then we're going to do it over. And then everyone is tapping, clapping on their thighs and doing these various things. And wait, let's start over. Let's go back and come out. Let's try it again. No, let's go in a, no, he's not over here this way. Oh, I'll just signal. He'll see it. Okay. When you have all of that, just imagine being in that dog's mind. I mean, I know what, what you were thinking, 
They're trying to get it right. They're not working with you though as easily as you'd like. They're not lining up. They're looking at something else. They're, they're in front of you. They're behind you. Your mind is thinking all of those things. And so that's what the dog is thinking. And then it's just all crazy. Versus walking up to the line and you already got the discussion about where the dog is, you know, next to you in position. And you've already worked all that out long before you got there. And you just utilize it on this day. A lot of times, folks, when you wonder why your dog, you know, in advance, is all, they're all crazy. <laughs> That's because you are. They are often reflecting your excitement level and your thing. Or, or, and I know there's, I can hear people going, well, I don't, I'm not really any different on game day than I'm a training. I'm just the same. But is that really true? Because for one, when you get it in your mind, oh no, I know, I just know what she's going to do when we start going up there. I just, and then there you've put it out there. And so there they do it. Or in training, you're very, uh, firm or you know kind of a little overbearing but you can't be that way in an event so now that you're not they do something there's all kinds of reasons that there's a difference on game day versus uh training day and, and you guys it can't be just because well i don't have the electric collar on if you're training where your dog knows they have the collar on and collar off and that therefore standards are different that's a you've allowed that to happen because if you train all the time the exact same way and do lots and lots and lots of training sessions that when you go to the event, it's just another thing. And so usually, unless you've done something where they really get the difference, then it, it's not the collar on or collar off. It's that something's different. And then a lot of times they get away with stuff at a test. And once they do that a couple times, you know, then they go, oh, this is cool. And that's all because of the, the relationship between dog and handler uh, not being this cohesive, single, basically aligned thing where you both have the same objective in, in mind. Very often, when you're more concerned about uh, something other than where we're going to line up and where the target is, when you're more concerned about other stuff, then that dog can't just walk up there and align and be focused on that one thing. There's so many ways that this can take place. Another way, not just the talking that we have, but the, your body movements. Again, body movements are just another language to them. Just like when you say words that they've learned to associate with certain expectations, your body does exactly the same thing. The way you stand um, <clears throat> the position you're facing, the way you're, if you're upright or kind of bent over, there's all kinds of body positions that affect a dog very strongly. And a lot of times people change those depending on several things. When you get kind of desperate or worried about something, if you've ever noticed, people tend to bend down in a kind of a pleading position. <laughs> like you do when you, you know, when you throw something for a bubby and they're coming back, you bend down because they're like, come on, little bubby, bubby, come on. And, you, and plus they're way down there. So you have to bend down, but it's a, you bend down in a real encouraging, hopeful, oh, come here. Let's, let's do this thing. When you have a big old dog that you've trained and you bend down in a subservient thing, you transfer power back to them. It just does. Yeah, I'll argue that with anybody. You're, you're transferring power back to them. When you bend over, if, if, if 
uh, you walk up to me, we're somewhere at a dog thing and you walk up to me and I kind of hunch my shoulders over and kind of bend down a little bit, you get a certain feeling about me versus if you walked over to me and I was standing up straight and I looked you in the eye and I reached out and shook your hand, you'd get a different feeling. And dogs are way more tuned into that kind of stuff. So our body positions, you know, whether we're facing at them versus how we normally do in training, when we're facing away from them, whether we're kind of already hunkered over, ready for this to kind of go wrong, we communicate volumes by just our body position, our stance, and then how we interact with them and how, which direction we face. And, and basically the body language that we're putting off that anyone else could read as well. Even people, they could read that. That's another thing. So when you're nervous and your body language is, is transferring power over to the dog and, and then your, you know, whatever your verbal stuff is slightly different, then your dog becomes very, very different. And it's also uh, kind of foggy and kind of confusing, which may either have them just ignore you and do what they want or make them be kind of worried and afraid. Why aren't you like the way you normally are? So a good thing to do, if you are sitting there going, I don't know about this, is have somebody stand there with their phone behind you and, and film you running your dog. Especially when you're not like, okay, they're filming and then trying to do everything right. I mean, have them film you when you're just heavily invested in working with your dog and see what you do. And as long as, and then film at other times. So you basically get to see with some consistency how it is you interact with a dog. And then get yourself filmed running in an event if that happens, if you do that. And look at the difference. <laughs> and sometimes it will absolutely amaze you. You may talk five times more than you ever talk in training. Or, or you may have the up and down and back and forth and nervous thing and the shoulders are, your, your shoulders are up under your, uh, earlobes and then you gotta, cause you're so uptight and then you bend over and then you got, and then when you cast, you're moving more or you're casting really fast or your whistle. Another favorite one that I really like is when somebody's running a dog on a blind or they're, they're having to handle and the dog's 30 feet out there and they blow a whistle that you could hear in the next county. What do you think that uh, tr translates to the dog? It's like you're screaming and you're either screaming because you're mad or you're screaming because you're praying the dog will stop, <laughs> which is most of the time what it is. You can see spit coming out of some people's whistles and the dog's just right there. So when you translate either that fear or anger or whatever it is you have, it goes direct, you know, the rest of us standing around also get it, but that dog gets it really loudly. So when you scream a set at him at 30 feet, we have not set a good precedent for the rest of this blind or mark that you're handling on. The noise itself can be very significant unless you scream all the time. In other words, whenever you're training and your dog is 30 foot out, you blow a whistle that could be heard in the next county. I would wonder why do you want to put that much energy into something that's just 30 feet away? If you don't think they're going to sit unless you scream, maybe you should work some more on sit to the whistle. But if you have a calm, remember, we're just, we're, we're aiming that rifle, right? And pulling that trigger. And if you, 
if you do that calmly and have taught them well, then when they go out and get a little off and you blow the sit whistle, they remain calm and they remain focused. A lot of times when you do the screaming Jimmy thing out there, then what are they going to do? Their next move is going to equal that. So if you give a left back at that, they might just take a left or, you know, over just screaming the wrong direction because you're screaming. So a lot of times with those really loud whistlers, you tend to get dogs that really kind of overcast because everything is so extreme and so high energy. And if you like it that way, then do it that way. But if that's kind of just what you do because everybody around you does it, I can guarantee you the dogs would prefer subtlety. They would prefer to stop at a whistle that they can hear that doesn't rock their ears and everybody else's. And that when you do that, it's a it's really almost a desperation thing. For whatever reason, you can sense the desperation in that whistle. But, and I've had the desperation whistles, you know, like, you better stop, you son of a gun. But if that's how you do it, and all the whistles are desperation whistles, assuming you have your dog trained to sit on a whistle, if you tried a little calmer deal, you might get calmer responses out of that. But, you know, particularly on really difficult blinds, we need you just need to kind of thread a needle sometimes. And, you know, if you want that subtlety in their thinking and their actions, then you too have to exhibit uh, that kind of subtlety as well. So whistles are a big part of that. Body language is a big part of that. And I, I'll talk about casts a little bit. And it's, uh, you know, interesting to watch people give casts. Whatever you do in training all the time, that's what you have to do in a competitive event. So what you want to do in training, if you, you know, would like this subtlety thing and don't have to have a lot of jumping around and, and fast stuff, is you can have the same kind of subtlety in your cast. If you've ever seen the casters who stand up on their tippy toes and fling that arm up as fast as they can and as hard as they can, you know, again, that's a real high energy, real, it's like a yelling thing, only you're yelling with your body. What do you want your dog to do? What do you expect them to do? Generally, if they're going to be highly reactive to a highly reactive cast. So if you want to just have them just, you know, just thread a little needle just between the bushes over there and you fling this big old thing, the odds of you getting that cast probably aren't as high as if you had a very reasonable, thoughtful cast given where they could sit there and go, ah, see that, and then take it. So casts that you give um, <clears throat> can be just super high energy or can have that subtlety thing. The, the whistle that you give to stop can be this super high energy, which is going to generate super high energy responses, or it can be the subtlety, just a, a nice tweet and a set. Obviously, the further out, the louder that it has to be. The send that you have, all of that stuff. The, the verbalization. Now, I know, you know, different camps do it different ways and whatever you like, do. But dogs don't have to have verbal casts given. I'll just say that. If I ever do give a verbal cast, it means something. <laughs> it is significant. Um, you know, it just, it's not, but if you just both throw an arm up and scream at them, now we have two things instead of one. That's not subtlety. One thing, one reasonably calm thing is subtlety. An arm and a beller 
is is not too much subtle, subtlety. So a lot of times you'll find when you do that double casting thing, which is a verbal and a physical, then you get sometimes a lot of action all over the place. And that may not bother you. But you don't have to have it. You can have the subtlety, but that requires subtlety on your part. You know, and if it don't move any more than you have to. And sometimes when you need a little more of a cast, you may have to use a little bit more body. So you've got all that kind of input going. I don't know if, if a lot of times people realize how much stuff is going on out there. And the dog is looking at you, listening to you, and feeling you. And so it would be very nice if you sent out very simple, clear, and consistent signals that are in the best interest of the dog instead of whatever loud, screaming, jumping kind of thing that your training group may engage in. I think finally on this topic, uh, the thing that I want to talk about is um, uh, decibel level of stuff. So if you're doing some kind of basic work, I don't care, you're walking to the line, you're walking to the holding blind, you're doing some basic obedience work, whatever it is, including the woe stuff for the pointing guys. <clears throat> if you have, if you, whatever level you enforce a command at is the one the dogs are going to take seriously. The level at which you enforce a command is the level that they will take seriously. So if you're enforcing, let's use real simple examples, sit, all right, and you're using it with a jerk of the choke chain, a pop on the bottom, a nick on the collar, whatever you're enforcing it with, hopefully an exactly appropriate, not some giant sledgehammer kind of thing, whatever the dog responds to that level, if you connect that level of enforcement with a, a voice like I have right now, sit, hear, heal, if you connect that enforcement with this level of sound, then this level of a sound can, carries that enforcement with it. If, however, you say sit, and then they don't sit or they kind of sit, and then you say sit again, and then and finally you're going to come in with whatever your enforcement is with a, a beller of sit, then it takes a beller of sit to have the dog take the command seriously. So that's true with heel here. It's true with the whistle. It's true with everything. So it's the level of enforcement that you give on a command. The de whatever, whatever decibel level you are at, that's the one that counts. So that's why you have the people with the heel, 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 here, sit, sit, and the, the constant talking, talking. Because one, basically nothing really means, you're just going to wear them down with noise. So you haven't had enforcement with that word so that they know, oh, it means it first time every time. So that's a, that's dog training stuff there. But that's how you do that. So you don't, if you have to say things four times, it's because you didn't enforce the command on the first time. You enforce a few times on the first time and then see that they're starting to respond. Then they will learn to respond the first time you say something. If you fling it at them six, seven times, then they finally wear down. Then that's the dynamic. We'll let them say it six or seven times, and by then we'll both be tired of it, and maybe I'll do it. So a lot of talking is never good, but it's this is related to the enforcement. So if you want a dog, when you say no here, you enforce no here, 
and no here carries a lot of weight. Same with sit and all that. So you can see when people are working with their dogs, as their decibel level changes or the frequency that they have to give a command, tells you everything about how they trained that dog. It tells you when they ever taught the dog, whenever they enforced the command, if they did. Sometimes they just nagged them into it, in which case the dog isn't really trained. But if it's usually the third or fourth time or when the dog, when the voice gets at a certain decibel level that everyone is hearing it, like the whistle that you can hear in the next county, that's where they enforce stuff. So consider that in your training program. Enforce at the level, sound level that you would like to have all the time. The key isn't the sound. It's when you enforce and keep your, your decibel level at as low an energy level as possible to get the job done. So you aren't flinging a bunch of extra energy into a situation that will not be benefited by a bunch of extra energy. There may be a situation where you do need a bunch of extra energy, but if that's what you use all the time, then you won't have it in that special needs time. So I don't know if that makes sense, but every now and then if you do have to have the, the, the come to Jesus whistle or, you know, no here. And it, you got a, you're saving a dog's life or something and you beller that out. It needs to mean something, not just be the way you do it all the time. So that's done by being aware of your noise that you make and the frequency that you do stuff. It means be aware that they respond to the command that is enforced. So you should be consistent with when you enforce commands and the noise level and energy level where you enforce commands because how you choose all of that is how your dog responds. It is not that darn dog. It is the, what you've taught them, hopefully with consistent uh, training and also being aware of this energy and sound and movement thing. If you can take all of that into account as much as possible, then you're freeing your dog up to just go do their job with as little input as necessary and not big energy blabs that just make them do the same thing out there. So anyway, I think that's important. I found it in, in my dog training for all these years to be very important and very, very helpful. <laughs> when you don't have to scream yellow and yell and have spit flying out your whistle, uh, because the dog has learned to pay attention to more subtle things that it doesn't always work perfectly, but overall, it's a much better way to interact with your dog and get through things and have them remain focused on the task at hand and not all the gyrations and noise and stuff that you're doing. So that's today. I hope everybody is doing well. Uh, we're having a finally springtime and that's great. We're getting to get outside and get together more all good stuff. So I wish everybody the best of luck with everything. Stay healthy, do good dog work, and G and I will be back soon.